0: Let's run through the course.
1: Um, And let my song. And let my song.
2: Yeah, just really, I, I mean, I'll be in my head voice. Just really. Uh, can you? Yeah. Can we try?
1: I keep thinking of the uh, darkness night. It just making me laugh. <laughs> all right, cool. All of you. So,
0: hallelujah, all I i see.
3: Jesus is the only name to remember. is the only name to remember. Jesus is the only name. Jesus is the only name. Jesus is mm mm-hmm.
4: In the Army National Guard, he doesn't preach real often at the church, but he'll fill in time from time to time. And uh, yeah, so that'll be cool. So we'll just we'll go. Yeah, we'll still go to church, and we'll just sit in. It'll be nice to just kind of be there passively, you know. Yeah, Yeah, which is not (laughs) normal for us. So yeah, be good.
2: Good good morning, everyone. we're gonna get started. So grab coffee. There's um. I'll be back there this whole morning, so please help yourself and continue to do that. And we just thought it'd be fun to start the morning. It's kind of early, and uh, to start with a little devotional before we sing and, and get into the morning. We have lots of content today. I'm super excited, but uh, I wanted to start us with prayer. Would you bow with me and pray? Father, thank you we get to be here. What a joy. What a joy for all you've done. What a joy for you saving us. How do we respond with, with wonder? Such a desire, Lord, that we might see you Jesus, that I pray for today you might help us to stand firmly where we need to stand, that you would accomplish it by your word in Jesus name. amen, amen. okay, I get to do a little devotional today we're going to do a few of these devotionals. this one is um, is a chance to think about because one of the things that happens this whole conference is about real life grace, the yes buts is that there is a yes. And the yes is gospel astonishment. Look what God has done. And I wanted to share with you this. You know it, but Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That's just amazing. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works that no one may boast. That's talking about our salvation, and it's incredible. It's right, isn't it? That that creates in us an amazing desire to want to respond to God. It's so good, and we have it. I know you have it if you've tasted this amazing Christ. The issue that comes up with the buts is what we do with it. So, for example, here we are in Ephesians, and it says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I'll tell you what, in Ephesians, there's three chapters, and there's not a single command, right? But here's where almost everybody that I know tries to bring in a command like it was so amazing that god saved you but now you need to figure out your works don't you see that this is also an encouragement that god who saved you he's got works that you're going to do and he's already prepared them as you have these desires it's not let's go figure it out and it's up to me i think how i take this is a little bit like this one you are in control well, it's hard to read. Huh? It says, "Meet the person who's uh, responsible for your." It says your actions it cut off, but it's your choices, your grades, your success, your words, your act, everything. It's about and there's a mirror. I think, oh yeah, God saved me, and He's put this little life in me. But really, it's about me. And the whole message of Christianity is it's not about you. I want to show you a video. It's about two minutes long. If you haven't seen it, it's from the mission, and I want you to look for where. Where I think, and you can't tell the heart, right? Where I think there's a really amazing work, good work, that happens. Uh, the back story is it's a, it's a story about Robert De Niro. And Robert De Niro is a very bad man. And he's killed a bunch of people, including his own brother. And he hears the word of God. And he gets so stricken. And then he feels like, i got to do something. And so he gathers up all this armor of all the things that he's done. And he, he wraps it up in a big bundle. And he begins to carry it up the mountain back to the people that he's harmed. And we pick it up there. done this penance long enough, and well, the other brothers think the same.
3: But he, he doesn't, doesn't think so, so John. He does,
2: So it's a powerful movie, and the interesting thing, as you watch that, is that if what you think is that the work is what robert de niro is doing because he's had this on his heart he's got to accomplish this in order to have redemption that's a terrible terrible thing right he's though impacted by someone else isn't he the most amazing work i saw in that whole clip was the brother came with his knife and he tried to machete through the burden that was on robert de niro that's amazing he wouldn't accept it But what an amazing thing to see. What I want to do, what I long to do, is to set you free and to take that burden away. And that is a good work, a real good work, isn't it? Hear from Galatians. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. May we do the good work that spontaneously comes from our God who's prepared them us proclaiming that jesus christ has done it all okay what we're going to do now is we're going to have some music and continue to, to enjoy snacks or coffee or anything but get into the substance of what we're doing today so come on up team and maybe i can pray for us one more time as we as we head in so father thank you so much that we get to be yours that you've prepared for us things we're to do lord we want to do them And, Lord, I pray we might have much fruit because you have planned out the things for us. Father, I pray you might use this time we get to spend this morning to free us from the ways that we think we are in control, that we might respond with joy to the wondrous salvation we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: you guys to stand and to remain sitting to worship as you worship as we continue
3: Shining brighter than the moon and the stars, believe we are.
1: your voices, sing glorious and mighty. Your voices to sing all oh, the love,
0: oh the love, my redeemer, never failing, come what may He has purchased my forgiveness and has washed my sins away.
1: Oh Lord, we rejoice in you knowing that this message of grace is true, God that you have done a hundred percent. You paid 100% of our debt, that it is not up to us, Lord, that we do not have to achieve it. We do not have to go and attain salvation, but Lord, we just receive it. We believe it. We trust that you've given it to us. And Lord, when we learn to rest in that grace is when we can sing songs with joy, knowing that you've taken care of our greatest concern, our greatest fear, our greatest worry. Lord, may our love for you spawn from our remembrance of the gospel and how much you truly love us. Lord, may we find peace and rest knowing that you love us more than we could ever comprehend. So, Lord, we praise your name because you are completely worthy. We love you, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Good
4: morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. My name is Jeff Pierce and I am really glad to be here, thankful for the, the friendships I've made over the years with Dax with and and Jim McNeely and Marnie and our friend Ryan Couch, who unfortunately is not he will be with us this morning. Where is he? Is he in the tropical islands somewhere, enjoying some sunshine? Mexico. So he's with his wife. So we miss him being here with us this weekend. But thankful for these friendships and thankful for the, the real life grace Facebook page that, that some of you are on and you interact with others on there. Really, really grateful for this group because of because of the common common belief and common celebration of of the gospel of radical grace. This unapologetic, unashamed sort of reckless faith in a God who says everything necessary for your salvation, everything necessary for your relationship with me, everything necessary for your, to use the big biblical terms, justification, sanctification, redemption, and adoption, and all those other great New Testament realities, everything necessary has been provided through Christ. It is such good news that we can rest in the finished work of Christ. I know that God is for us, right? And and here's what happens for some of us, maybe for all of us, is that while we are so encouraged and refreshed by that message and liberated by that message, there is also this sort of sneaking suspicion that perhaps, perhaps it's not true, perhaps... It is too good to be true. I mean, it sounds too good to be true, that God would be that gracious, that loving, that kind. And so we can wrestle with these doubts, these fears within, that maybe God still has the scorecard out. Maybe he's watching my life, and the jury's still out on me, sort of. And, and at times, we, we encounter passages in the Bible that seem to fuel that, that fear. And James 2 is one of these passages that can be difficult. And I want to read it to you, and I want to share with you how, how I've come to understand this text. There's been a significant shift in how I understand this text, and I want to explain to you how I believe this passage does not in any way undermine the gospel of God's radical grace, but in fact harmonizes with and highlights the gospel of God's radical grace. So let me read it for you. You can follow along. It's James 2, 14 through 26. And it's familiar to, I'm sure, many of you. James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe And shudder, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works. And not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So I want to tell you about my personal history with this passage. This is one of the first passages I ever taught coming out of Bible college years ago. And I was eager to to dive in and, and use all the neat. Bible study tools I had acquired throughout my education. And I remember teaching it in an adult Sunday school class. And it was a small group, but I can be kind of a fiery guy. And I preached this thing. And I was, at that time, a uh, dyed-in-the-wool, banner-waving Calvinist and believer, staunch believer in lordship, salvation. And, man, I, I preached this text. And I'll tell you, I loved this passage. I loved it. And and here's one of the reasons I loved it. I don't believe I was clear on it back then, but I I think I'm a little bit more clear on it now. And and it sort of relates to something about me, and and maybe some of you can, can relate to this. Growing up, I've always wanted to be great. I've always wanted to be great. And I tried lots of different things. Lots of pursuits in lots of different arenas. Athletic pursuits and academic pursuits and even dabbled in the the business and finance world a little bit, and and here's what happened. I always found out that I was really no more than average, pretty average dude, and that kind of bothered me. I had a really high standard for myself. But when I went off to Christian college and I turned my back on some of those pursuits and especially academically became a Bible major, I found my niche, man. I mean, I found where I could shine. For the first time in my life, I was getting all A's in my classes. I uh, I didn't realize it in my younger years, but when I went to college, I, I began to understand about myself that I like to think and read and communicate. And when you're that type of person, you can do really well within a, a Bible major program. And so I was excelling, and I was well regarded on campus and I was the chaplain of the senior class remember that Jill I was good at being good Dax we were saying last night you weren't part of this conversation but I was saying I think you and I need to compete for who's the better goody-goody like I was pretty good at it I think I might have been better than you at it we'll argue about that later But I love James too because in my mind at that time, James too was saying, get better, improve. And I was thinking, I am getting better. I'm doing well. I've got the grade point average to prove it and the respect of other people to prove it. I finally found my place to shine. And as my friend down in Olympia likes to say, Sometimes things work until they don't. Sometimes things work until they don't. I was climbing the ladder. And this is one of the texts that was like a series of rungs on that ladder, and I believed I was was getting there, man. And that's all fine and good until you fall off the ladder and break both your legs, and you're on the ground. And I won't go into the details of it, but I'll just say this. Years ago in ministry down in Olympia, the church where I pastor, we went through a difficult season. and Really, for the first time in my life, I started to realize that I am not a loving guy. I might be a nice guy, I might be a goody-goody, but I am not a loving guy. And when it comes to how God defines love, I don't have it and not just like i don't have much of it i don't have it and i was going through through some things god ordained things in my life that just acquainted me with the fact that i couldn't do the most basic the most basic thing when it comes to christianity love sinners love my enemies forgive sir so i couldn't do that i could do lots of moral things i could perform in certain ways i was doing really well as i said academically and all of that could preach a good sermon but i couldn't love sinners and i was on my face and, and here's what happened my love for james 2 in a way turned into kind of a kind of a hatred of james 2 i, I started to fear man may, i mean if this passage is true in the way i've understood it to this point I, i'm in deep trouble here so it was a significant, to use some big words, existential crisis for me. Okay, This is not merely an academic exercise this morning. I'm sharing with you my heart on how God has revealed himself to me in fresh ways through this passage, showing me that James does not contradict the gospel of God's radical grace, but in reality is preaching the gospel of God's radical grace grace. And I want to spend a little time this morning hopefully helping you helping you to believe that as well. If you're here, some of you may have those suspicions, those fears and I hope to do a little bit to silence them. That really my hope is that God will silence them. That You will see God's heart for you this morning. You'll see his love for you. So we've read the text. Let me say something about what everybody when it comes to the world of biblical study but everybody who's ever studied this book and has ever studied the writings of paul has had to acknowledge and that is that james and paul on the surface seem to directly contradict one another I'll just give you two examples in romans 328 james says or paul says sorry paul says we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law pretty clear James 2.24 says, A man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Even when you dive into the original language, I mean, the the terms are exactly the same. And it seems to be that they're saying the exact opposite. Romans 4.2, this is the second example. Romans 4.2, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Implication being he was not justified by works. But James 2.21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? And he assumes an affirmative answer. Yes, he was. Anyone who's ever studied the New Testament has had to grapple with that problem. And and so now where we're going is we're going to talk about the common, I was going to call it the traditional view, but it's probably more appropriate to call it the the commonly held view among evangelicals. This is the view I had before my crash and burn, okay? Okay. The commonly held view, and, and here's what they say to try to resolve the, the apparent contradiction there. They say, hey, Paul and James aren't arguing with one another. They're not opponents facing one another. Instead, they are like back-to-back defending the gospel against two different dangers. Paul defending the gospel against the legalists or the, the Judaizers. James defending the gospel against the licentious or the antinomians. That's what was said about, or has been said often about this. People say, James is not about the way you become a believer, but it's about how you prove that you are a believer. It's about assurance of your salvation. People say it's about not justifying yourself before God so much as it's about justifying yourself before other people, or even maybe justifying yourself in your own eyes, or maybe even justifying your faith itself. It's, it's about that. You hear it said, and I don't know who this is originally attributed to, but you hear it said, Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. And so the passage is explained in these ways. It is heralded passionately in these ways, and, and I was for sure one of those heralds. As I said, that works until it doesn't. And the the consequence of that way of interpreting this passage, well, for what for me, and, and whether intended or unintended, that the consequence of it is that that you still kind of have to view God as having the scorecard out. You still have this burden on you of you better prove it. I mean, you better work really hard to prove that you're saved or you, you might not be. It is experienced as a severe warning in that sense. And, and that can only lead to either delusion if you think you're pulling it off or despair if you realize that you're not. That's the, that's the result. And so I want to do this now, and this is, uh, I should maybe should have said this earlier, Dax and I were talking about this last night. We're, we're giving you some very detailed messages this conference because we're trying to help answer some of these questions. So I know this is a lot of information, and I'm just trusting that you can track with me, and, and I'm planning here to have some Q&A at the end. Okay. So if you have any questions, jot them down. We'll try to answer them later. But I want to give you nine, and that's a lot. We're going to go quick. Nine Problems with the common view. The view I just summarized. Some of them being kind of theological or logical in nature, and, and the latter ones I'll share more in the contextual category. But the first ones being sort of theological. The common view appeals to the fleshly, natural presupposition that we have something to offer when it comes to The works of God. The things that really matter. The things of spiritual consequence. Life. And by extension, love. Which is the manifestation of spiritual life. It appeals to the fleshly presupposition that we have something to offer in that regard. When the Bible makes it very clear from Genesis forward that we don't. That in fact, that actually stems from our initial rebellion of trying to be like god we are not like god in that sense we don't have the ability to live spiritually or even to live physically apart from god's miraculous grace and involvement in our lives it doesn't happen he has to breathe the breath of life into us but the common view appeals to that fleshly presupposition secondly it appeals to the fleshly assumption that we can trust our own assessment of our works That we can somehow measure our own spiritual growth accurately, which frankly just ignores our human limitations and, more importantly, ignores our fallenness, what theologians call the noetic effects of sin, effects of depravity on the mind, ignores those. thirdly it turns our focus to ourselves and our performance rather than god who is the whole point the one we were created to see and to worship forever it turns our focus off of him onto ourselves navel gazing i mean preached passionately by those who claim to be who boast of their god-centeredness yet it is ironically man-centered Fourth, it doesn't clearly state exactly what kind of works, though we tend to come up with our own checklists, which are often arbitrary, nor does it indicate, and this is even more crucial, nor does it indicate how many are necessary for one to have assurance. I mean, how much work do you have to do to ever know that you're God's, that you're in? How much? It's never-ending. Fifth, it doesn't account for the matter of motives in our works, which are obviously very important to God and which are not detectable by us. Paul himself said, I don't even judge myself. Leave that for God on the final day. Paul admitting in a very real sense, like, I don't even know my own motives. There are plenty of religious people in all kinds of religions and cults who are very moral people. We have good conduct, but the Bible gets to the issue of the heart and motives, and and we don't see that clearly. Now, contextually, okay, in terms of what James says in his in his letter, contextually, this is number six in our list. James throughout presents an understanding of the gospel and faith that makes it clear that we are made alive by the word of truth the word implanted in chapter 1, not anything we contribute. It's a word that comes from outside of us. It's God bringing good news to us, saying, you're alive. You didn't contribute anything to that any more than Lazarus did when Jesus raised him from the dead. Seventh, contextually, if works as in works of the law are in view, or if that's what James meant, there's a huge problem because in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. And furthermore, in chapter 3, verse 2, it says, we all stumble in many ways. So if it's up to works of the law, we're in big trouble. Eighth, contextually, James says over and over that God alone is the rightful judge, not you, not me. He is the judge. He is the one who sees clearly. That's in chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, chapter 5, verse 9. And the ninth, this is the last one. And this is not a comprehensive list. There are probably many more. Contextually, James picks Abraham and Rahab to illustrate the work of faith pretty bad examples if overall track record is in view because even after believing in God, Abraham continued to rebel against God when you read the history of his life, there are a whole lot of really atrocious things that he was guilty of let's take for example offering his wife to other men, not once, but twice what do you think ladies? imagine sitting on that counseling session as he tries to explain his rationale for that decision? It's a pretty flagrant sin. And then there's the incident with, with Hagar and Ishmael and how he clearly was relying upon his own fleshly strategy in that case. So if Abraham's life is really what his salvation was based upon, I think we've got some problems and rahab you know the story there one biblical record of a good work in her life one good work mentioned and it's mentioned here in james 2 but we know what the pattern of her life is and again how would she ever know that she did enough to to tip the scales in her favor when it came to her assurance how could she ever know so, so these are just some of the problems that again in my mind are kind of some of them are theological, some of them are more logical. Now, now we get to the fun stuff, okay? Now I want to talk about what I believe this means. I, I felt like that was important to walk through that. I think, I think you understand, and we can come back around in Q&A if you have any questions about those. But but this is where it gets exciting, okay? So we talked about the common view which I believe is inconsistent with the gospel. Now I want to talk about the consistent view, which fits perfectly with the gospel of God's radical grace. And really, this boils down to definitions, Okay, how we understand these terms. Often I will teach through a passage verse by verse, like Dax. We go through books of the Bible and I teach verse by verse. But this morning, I want to hit what I think is the core of this confusion, and it relates to the definition of these terms. And in particular, the terms faith and works. So we're going to talk about those two. Now, the way it's presented here in James is it's presented in the context of, of individuals. Again, Abraham and, and Rahab, people and their stories. Uh, I kind of wish the Bible was like this inspired dictionary or it had a glossary in the back. It doesn't, but God gives us stories of people and reveals himself in these stories of people's real lives and so we have abraham and and we come to see and understand what faith is by looking at his life he mentions abraham in verse 21 was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered up isaac his son on the altar You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Both James and Paul quote this Genesis 15 text that says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Both quote that text as saying, hey, that's where he was credited with righteousness, and that's what God was up to in his life in that sense. The question we have to ask is, what did Abraham believe? What did he believe? Which to James's Jewish audience would have been common knowledge. You know what he believed? God said, hey, Abraham, look up. Look at the stars in the sky. Can you count them? Your descendants are going to be like those stars. And you know what Abraham's response was? And I'm taking some editorial liberties here, but are you kidding me? You know how old I am at this point? In his 70s, Probably. Lived a long time. He and Sarah never able to conceive. And he looks up he's like, What? Wow. I mean, how is that going to happen? I mean, how is that going to happen? All these decades have gone by. We've never been able to conceive. How is that going to happen? So, what was the nature of Abraham's faith? What did he believe? Here's what he believed. He believed... God, if life is going to happen, and that's exactly what conception is, if life is going to happen, you're going to have to do it because I don't have it and Sarah doesn't have it. It ain't happening otherwise. It says in Romans, as Paul talks about this, he says, and this is fascinating, he says twice, and depending on your translation, you may or may not see it, but he uses the term dead. He says, Abraham was as good as dead. When Isaac, the promised son, was conceived and Sarah's womb was dead, 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 dead. How does life come from death? You're not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Only God can do it. I've got nothing. You've got nothing. Only God can do that. And then in the same passage where Paul is talking about, Abraham and Sarah, and how they were dead, and how God was the life giver. He he sort of defines faith there. He says God calls into being that which does not exist. That's what it is to believe. It's to believe that God calls into being that which does not exist. That's Romans four seventeen. And so they conceive Isaac, and and his name. Anyone in here know what his name means? The Hebrew term means to me. Mean? Laughter. Why laughter? Because they're like, are you serious? I mean, this is amazing. This never could have happened. And when he was conceived by that point, it was many years after the promise. Abraham was I think, pushing a hundred, and Sarah ninety. Abraham had nothing to contribute. So as we think about what does faith mean? Please hear this, okay? Faith does not look to oneself, but outside of oneself. Faith is not what I contribute to this thing. Faith is the acknowledgement that I contribute nothing. When it comes to what matters to God, what is of spiritual import, love for God, love for others, spiritual life, I've got. Nothing, and you've got nothing. And we hear voices constantly in the church and voices in our own minds, frankly, saying, Do more, do something. But the truth is, we can't do anything when it comes to these areas of life. Faith is an expression of utter desperation, not some kind of internal perspiration. It's not a muscle that I'm working on strengthening. Back in the day when I taught this, I had this illustration which was atrocious, but at the time I thought it worked. Remember the flexed arm hang? Some of us had to do that in phys ed class growing up. You pull yourself up on the bar and you've got to hold yourself there. And eventually your muscles give way and you fall off and you do it again. And over time, if you keep it up, you'll strengthen you'll be able to hold on longer. I viewed faith it was like this muscle. If I just hold on, yeah, maybe I'll slip off, but I mean, I'm getting stronger. I'm getting. Look, that's not faith faith's flat on its back saying, I don't, I, I can't do anything, I can't even move. And it looks outside of itself to the one who is life, God. And so as you come to the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the resurrection of the He who lives and believes in me will never die. He is the embodiment, the personification of God's life. And to believe is to say, if I'm going to have life at all, and by extension, if I'm going to have love at all, the essence of spiritual life and really the essence of righteousness, if that's going to happen, it is going to be Christ, not me. Because I don't have it. Any more than Abraham and Sarah could conceive with her dead womb and his almost dead body. Faith looks to Christ who is life, who is love, which is exactly what James is communicating. In fact, when he says in chapter 2, we we're going to say a little bit about this, some of these practical matters. I'll say a little bit about how we understand them. But he begins in chapter 2 by saying, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. They don't fit. And I'll explain that in a minute. But I just want you to think, he's saying, look, Jesus is glorious. Jesus is amazing. You've heard the gospel preached. Don't minimize Christ. So let's talk about the word works, okay? The word works. There are works that are born out of belief that God brings into being that which does not exist. Faith does work in that sense. Just for fun, I'm throwing this in there. I will not say much about it, but several times in James and Paul, the subject of the sentence is faith. Faith is working. It's interesting, significant. Faith does work. In Abraham's case, the examples he gives, Abraham offered up Isaac. And what was happening there, what was happening was everything God had promised, he now has his son, and God says, kill him. What? Once again, the threat is, this is a death and life issue. Do you see that? And Abraham says, well, here goes, I guess. And Hebrews explains he believed God could raise him from the dead. I mean, I don't know. He gave me this kid in the first place, I guess. whatever. And I don't think it was this triumphant, yes, God, I believe in you, man of integrity. I just, I don't buy it. I think he's like... What is going on? God, what? Are you serious? I think he's trembling. He's a human being. He doesn't understand what is happening until God says, hey, you know what? There's a substitute. Your son's going to live. But, I mean, this was a life and death situation. And Rahab, kind of the common denominator with her, it's similar. She takes in these spies. She puts her life on the line. This could be the end of me, but here we go, I guess. Because, God, you're all I got. He too is seeing that life was in God's hands. It's a miracle. And so th- these works are, are utterly self-denying. De- okay, They're, These are utterly self-denying works. And I don't mean by that, here's what you can do. You can deny yourself. I mean, these are works that say, I, I have nothing. Self-denying that says, I'm, if, it's, if it's just me, I'm dead. It's, it's an accurate understanding of what is capital T, True. It's true. It's true physically. It's true spiritually. The kind of faith that Abraham had, the kind of faith that Rahab had, the kind of faith that, that we have when we see Christ for who he is, it does produce works. I love how, how Dax, I've heard you say this before, um, you know, the, the saying you hear of, Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. And that has the flavor of like warning to it and and prescription to it. And and I think I've heard you say before, Dax, you've switched the word but to the word and. Faith alone saves, and the faith that saves is never alone. From warning to to more promise. From prescription to, to provision. God is a life giver, a provider. He is gracious. And what does this perspective do to understand God this way, to understand the gospel this way, to understand that I bring nothing to the table except my death? What does it do? You know what it does? It levels the playing field. It acquaints you with the fact that you're no better than anybody else. And what God does is he, he produces this sort of mercy With that understanding of faith, you go back to James 2, the earlier section I mentioned it earlier, but when you got someone who walks in with fine clothes and someone who looks like they're just off the street, faith doesn't see oneself as superior. The other perspective, I mean, it cannot help but fuel this competitive, comparative kind of thing. And when you think about the culture back then, when they associated material wealth with spiritual strength, part of their kind of misunderstanding of the old covenant, they, they associated the two. So if a poor man came in, in their mind, that would be like someone coming in that we know is a moral train wreck. That would be the equivalent today, in a sense, because of how they understood wealth and health and what it meant. They believed that meant that person was, had more spiritual integrity, was a better Christian as it were. And James says, look, the, like, and he uses the terms the saving kind of faith, the living kind of faith. When, when faith is, I, I know I have nothing of spiritual worth in and of myself, that means I don't have any more or any less than anyone else. And there's something God does through that. And sure one, a person's will is engaged. You got him talking about an opportunity here with someone who's in need of food. And you and you've got Abraham, and he made choices, and Rahab made choices, but but do you see like underneath those choices was this like hands up, God just uh okay. And nowhere does it say how many choices you need to make or Whatever, it's not meant to be a checklist, okay? It's not meant to be. God will will produce works. Works are born out of faith. And, and contextually in James, you see that over and over, like these these works of mercy that just are born out of. And Paul's, on the contrary, in terms of contradicting James, Paul says the same things. Dax read a passage earlier in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast faith and grace. And he says, For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we walk in them. There's the works, right? Hey, there's going to be works, God's already ordained it. Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. That verb working is the the verb form of the same Greek root as the noun works here in James 2. It's faith works. Something love happens. This is the last example I'll give, but I can't help But share this. I'm I'm teaching through Exodus at our church right now. And I just happened to notice recently that the terms work and serve and slave are all used in Exodus with respect to both Pharaoh and God. Those same words are used with reference to Pharaoh and with reference to God, the Israelites' relationship with the two. And what occurred to me is, really our our struggle is not with the terms themselves. Like, really where the point of clarification comes is it boils down to the the nature of the authority figure, the nature of the master, or the character of the master. The Bible doesn't shy away from using these terms with respect to God. It just has a completely different definition because of it being in relation to God. Because of the character of God and the heart of God. So, for example, under Pharaoh, work is burdensome. Under God, it is burden-free because God has borne my burden. Under Pharaoh, it is for favor to stay in Pharaoh's favor. Isn't that the way it works in this world? To stay in someone's favor. You better keep performing. You better meet their conditions. Under God, it is from favor because we already have it. Under Pharaoh, work is for serving Pharaoh and his selfish purposes. Under God, it is for serving others because God in Christ has served me and given me absolutely everything. Under Pharaoh, work is for saving my skin. Under God, it is for saving other people's skin because God has already saved mine. The issue isn't the word work, the issue is the character, the heart of the authority figure. And God's heart is gracious, consistently gracious. He is a life-giving God. Living faith, saving faith, to use the terms James uses, says, I have nothing. God is my only hope for anything of value, spiritually speaking, for life, for love. And God says, be encouraged. That kind of faith works. It's where God inserts himself and works in and through desperate people, who walk in Christ, to use Paul's language, even as or in the same way as they received him. And I want to say just as a closing closing word of encouragement, you know, as I preach the gospel of Jesus alone in our church, I am blessed to see a lot of fruit in people's lives. As they hear the good news that you don't have to do anything that everything necessary for your relationship with God is taken care of, that you are free, that you can rest. I get the privilege of seeing the miraculous love of people, and it's never perfect, and I don't even claim that I can appraise it all exactly. God only knows. It's his deal. But but I'm benefiting from the people around me. and, And contrary to producing lazy people, I experience mercy through these people and the same thing with the Facebook page and the, the safety there it's a pretty honest group sometimes some of the posts you, you might not want your kids reading but the but the mercy the the level ground the, hey i get it the walking in the light together cuz none of us have anything jesus is everything for all of us something happens there god does something there's mercy there's compassion there's and I'm not saying it's all the time because sometimes we're still judgmental jerks but but God works he pours out his life and his love according to his own design and his own in his own ways and all that but he does so I hope I hope you're encouraged by what we've talked about my God. There's a lot of time. we got like two minutes left. Uh, can we do Q&A for at 15? Wow. Sweet. That's gracious. All right. Um, so why don't I pray, and it'll give you a minute, even though you're supposed to be paying attention to the prayer, but it'll give you a minute to do what you always do, which is think about other things. And let's pray, and then we'll have a little chat. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this message that Paul preached, that James preached. You are life. You are love.
2: And of ourselves, like Abraham, we, we, we don't have it.